Hello and welcome to the Addicts Anonymous podcast. I'm your host, Jamar. Today's episode 193. We're going to be interviewing Rob. How you doing, Rob? Good, bud. Glad to hear it. You excited to do this or what? Yeah, excited and nervous. You know, combination of both. Oh, I hear you. Completely hear you. So let's start off nice and easy. Tell me about your childhood and growing up. Childhood was traditional. Ma stayed home for the most part. Dad went to work. Um, Lived in Florida for the first 10 years down in Tampa. And then we came back home to Wyoming County, New York in 94. And I only remember it was April of 94 because Kurt Cobain committed suicide. As they Kurt say. Yeah. And um, you know, Wyoming County, small county, has always been home. So. so tell us about your childhood. Did you have any brothers and sisters? Yeah, I, I had a, a younger brother. Uh, little big brother, as they say. <laughs> a little bit bigger than me, but and then I got a sister. My brother is 36 and my sister is 30. So, you know. How old are you? Live, I am, I'll be 39 here in December. Alright, so you're the big brother. Yeah. And, you know, my dad went to work out of state, you know, I was home pretty much on the weekends and mom went back to college so I ended up you know raising my brother and sister there for a few years and then um we lived a normal you know childhood you know we did you know small things we didn't have a lot of money so we did small things as a family you know you know going parks and whatnot cheap cheap things you know but it's not necessarily the cost, but, uh, you know, memories you make. Exactly. Exactly. So how'd you do in school? <laughs> I was always the one that was the class clown or the guy that, you know, was always friends with everybody. You know, I played some football, but, you know, I ended up, you know, being more of a troublemaker with wanting to party and stuff like that. But I didn't really fit in anywhere, but I fit in everywhere. What do you, what do you mean by that? You mean you felt like an outsider, but you fit in with everyone? What do you mean? Yeah, I mean, I got along with the jocks. I got along with the hippies. I got along with the goths. I got along with the preps. You know, I just, I was a guy that, no matter the situation or the group of people around me, I was always, you know, likable. I could just go with the flow with whatever type of group of people I was around. Gotcha. Got Understood. So what was your social life like? Did you have a lot of friends growing up? Hey that you know, um, I, I had decent parents to where, you know, my, my dad was the type that I know you're going to party, but if you're going to party, you might as well be here. I know where you're at. So I was the guy that was able to get alcohol 
or whatever the case may be. If you wanted to have a good time, I was the guy to call. You know, so I was always the guy at all the parties. You, you know how it is in high school and stuff like that. That, you know, whatever time you're trying to have, I was the guy for it. What type of parties would you guys have? Oh, I mean, ma- how, how many mainly, people? Mainly, um, it, usually a keg party. I mean, it would be uh, 75 to 100 people, and it was out in the field. We'd build a fire, threw a fire up, had a keg, you know, dig keg stands, the usual, you know, out in the country type stuff, you know. You know, um... It was uh, hard to explain, I guess. Well, it's, it's simple, but it's not. You know what I mean? Pretty much the cops didn't. The cops knew, but they didn't care. As long as you weren't out drinking, driving, and doing, being an idiot and vandalizing and stuff like that. If you're, you know, out in the middle of nowhere and you're staying where you're at, then they kind of overlook it. Was it a small town you grew up in? Oh, yeah. Right in the county. It says right when you enter the county, there's more cows than people. Um, our high, graduating high school class was, I think, like 90, maybe, 93. So it was tw- almost 20 years ago. I graduated in 03, so... It's hard to remember the exact number. <laughs> yeah, no, but that's a very small class. I forget how big mine was, but I know it wasn't 93. I know it was <laughs> much, much bigger than that. Like, if I said a 1,000, is that a crazy amount of people? I mean, I feel like, actually, no, it wasn't a 1,000. But I feel like it was probably a few hundred. Yeah. I What's, would like, say... the average high school? I don't even know. I never thought about it. I, I'm not sure. Tell you the truth, I I think some of the bigger cities. I know they're d- divided into districts and stuff like that. And I want to say there's some classes that get up to seven or eight hundred people in a class. Yeah, we were big. I know that. I would be lost. <laughs> My anxiety would set in. <laughs> oh, I had I didn't realize it at the time, but. That was when I started having anxiety issues. Um, when I was in high school, I was a, I was a fucking animal. I would start fights when they want. I would just get so like I would get an explosion of like adrenaline from my anxiety. You know what I mean? I was like walking on eggshells all day. I felt like um, for myself, I was like yeah. nervous about myself. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I didn't really. My anxiety didn't really kick in until. Uh, after prison. You said after prison? Yeah. How old were you when you first went to prison? I was turning 23, and I got out. I was getting ready to turn 32. I went in August 1st of 2008 and got out June 6th of 2015. Well, I did seven-year bid. Yeah, yeah. But real quick, before we get to that, let's just step back a little bit. Did you graduate high school? Yes. I was fortunate. Okay. 
teachers like me, so they kind of helped me out with some of my final averages. I got lucky. Too. We got some, something in common. I got lucky, too. I remember a quick story. I had a coach, Mr. Gillick, and he was my history teacher. But I, he was my football coach also. And c- comes and grabs me at the end of the year. And he's like, you failed. He goes, I'm supposed to fail. you." He goes, but I'm not going to. He goes, because I don't want to see your ass here next year. <laughs> I can't stand it. So he, he gave me a D. <laughs> and I got That's... really lucky. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was a you. crazy kid. Like I was the class clown, but I was also crazy. Like if you you said anything stupid, I would want to fight right away. Yeah, I, I didn't really get into too many fights. I I got into two fights when I was in school, and because I I'm a shorter stature guy. I mean, I was I'm five four, you know, one hundred and forty pounds. So I got the small man complex. So I, I didn't really get into too much fights, but pay it no mind as well. Yeah, I mean, it's so funny because now I'm so anti-violence fighting. I would laugh I, if I would have met my younger self. He'd be laughing at me. Like, dude, get out of here! You're joking. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I was a little punk. I think if I met myself, I'd smack the shit out of myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what are you like, thinking? Come here, you little punk. You fucking yeah. think you are. Yeah, exactly. But anyway, back to you. Um, so, graduate high school. What do you do once you graduate high school? What, what was your like life plan? Because most people do something. They either go to work, they go to college, they maybe sit on their asses and do absolutely nothing? Well, I didn't. Well, see, I went to college, but I had fallen into addiction when I was 15. I went from smoking weed every day when I was 12. But I so had a very... Your first time you ever smoked weed, how old were you, 12? Yeah, I had a very traumatic experience, which I've only talked to my counselor and soon to be ex-wife about but i smoked weed for about 3 years and the second drug i tried was crack i started smoking crack when i was 15 to forget and about this and you were doing it to forget about your traumatic event it was my escape at the t- time i didn't realize it but looking back it was the only thing i you know, it started off on the weekends, and then it went to three days a week, and then every day a week. I mean, um, and that that was all the way up until I went to prison. I mean, when I got out of high school, I went to college, and it was a NASCAR Technical Institute, so they did drug tests. Of course, I failed a drug test, and they wanted me to take uh, classes. They wanted six weeks of classes. Each class cost $50. I'm in college. I couldn't afford that, so I blew it off. I I ended up getting kicked out of college, and then I went to work doing construction with my old man for a couple months, and then I went into the Marine Corps. I went into the Marine Corps, graduated boot camp, 
boot camp leave, you get a week off to come home. I came home and one of my childhood friends threw some weed in my lap. I said, I can't do that. I'll fail the drug test when I get back because he owed, he owed me some money. So he took that weed back and he came back and this was actually the first time I actually did coke. I, until then, I always smoked it. Um, I did, you know, he brought me back what I owed, what he owed me, I should say, and um, did coke that night. And when I went back to um, what it's called MCT training at Camp Geiger, which is your um, combat training, um. I had failed the drug test with 0. 0.008 milligrams of cocaine in my system still. And I was put on probation for 17 months. Camp Geiger is a non-alcoholic base. And I could have gone through with the, you know, being on the right narrow. But five minutes away was the liquor store. And I was the only one that had the gall to go to the liquor store. And I went to the liquor store and was getting bottles of liquor for other Marines that was either on medical hold or in my situation that had gotten in trouble and it was a holding on them. So I would go get the liquor and sell it to them for twice the price. I ended up um, acting like a fool and they, um, you know, brought me in for a breathalyzer test and you know I failed it and they gave me a warning but I didn't really care at that time because I was too far involved with dealing with personal demons I kept drinking they caught me again and I got lucky they gave me a dis they gave me an honor uh a general discharge other than honorable so it wasn't a dishonorable discharge. I'm technically I'm considered a veteran, but I do not hold that. I don't consider myself a veteran because I had my great grandfather that was on Pearl Harbor that was bombed and survived. I've had numerous uncles in uh, Vietnam. I got uh, uncle that was in the Gulf Coast, and um or the golf war and you know it's just I don't yeah I did boot camp I did the um training the field training the combat training as far as MCT goes but I'm not the type of guy to you know just because I technically qualify as a veteran I don't consider myself as a veteran, because I don't see me having enough time in. Um, so after the Marine Corps, I got out, and I was doing construction with my old man, and that was going good. Um, we were going out of state and stuff like that. And at this time, we were doing traveling construction on waterway treatment plants. And when I was down there. Um, of course, when you're involved in different addictions, whether it's alcohol, drugs, 
you know, your choice of drug, you always attract that company. You know, for some reason, you stick out like a sore thumb and those type of people attract you. And, um, can crack and stuff like that. And, um, what led me to prison was I was, I was, I had met a girl. She ended up being a stripper and she was not taking care of the child at all. And I was the main provider. I was, you know, one morning the child was crying and whatnot and I was taking care of it. I picked it up out of the crib. I ran upstairs. I forgot the bottle. So I ran back downstairs, tripped over my feet. And we were living in my parents' basement, which was, you know, pretty much like an apartment. I had tripped up on the step, yanked the handrail. The child fell out of my arm. I was about five steps from the bottom, fell out of my arm onto the concrete floor. Being young, I, I've never dealt with children or anything. It seemed fine. I was fine. Um, gave it this bottle, laid it back down. It ended up having a little bit, bit of bleeding on the brain. <clears throat> so I went into, um, I, it was questions, stuff like that. Passed, passed the lie detector test. But they felt like I had harmed the child. So even though the evidence didn't match up, like the the bruising on the child's head didn't match up with, you know, like knuckle prints or anything like that. My hands wasn't bruised or anything like that. So after being young and dumb, after eight, 10 hour, 8 to 10 hours of questioning, interrogation. I just told them what they wanted because I was like, there's the evidence shows that I didn't intentionally harm the child. So, went to court. I was sentenced to 16 years. They suspended 8. After being sentenced, I found out that my attorney which my parents would have paid for, but I didn't want to put them in debt. I went with a public defender. I had found out that my public defender was a divorce attorney and had never handled a criminal case. So I go through, you know, the seven years of prison and whatnot. I get out of prison and I had four years of parole. (coughs) Excuse me. Four years of parole. Always passed the drug test and whatnot. So I got out June 6th of 2015. Started working construction again with my old man. I would always leave $350 on the counter for rent. They said, no, I don't want to take it. You know, you save it up, get on your feet. With them living in Pennsylvania, I did my prison time in Virginia. With being an out-of-state parolee, I had to live with my parents for half the time. So after two years of working construction, which we were working down in Baltimore, Maryland, which ended up being the biggest water waste treatment plant in the world, it was a $350 million job. 
I got off of parole early, um, October 17th of 2017, and that's when I moved back up to New York. And I've been clean since I've been out of prison. And even in prison, it's easier to get stuff in there than on the streets. I was just about to ask, what was life like in prison? <clears throat> um, It was the only reason why, why I survived. I had to fight my first year and a half. I was a smaller stature guy. But I fought to earn that respect. And I only... I won some fights. I lost some fights. That's the way it goes. But what helped me was my Marine Corps training. You know, the combat, hand-to-hand combat training. Because one thing about prison, you go in there, you act like a tough guy. They're going to see how tough you go are. You, you walk around like you're timid. They're going to try to take your stuff. And then guys like me, you fight them. And, you know, they, they'll, you'll earn respect because they'll get sick of fighting you and they'll just leave you alone. Um, I was at seven different prisons in seven years. Why? Um, because I ran the NASCAR gambling ring ring. What it's called is a parlay. You got 10 picks, each driver matched up against each other. And you pick out four drivers. Well, it's called four for 10, five for 20, or six for 100, which you got to get all your picks right. Say, at the time I was in prison, I would have it, it would switch up every week depending on the track based on the strengths of the drivers and how good they did at that track. So, say, you know, I got, you know, the 10 different matchups, you pick out four drivers. All I have to do is finish in front of that driver. So you put a dollar on it, you get all four drivers right, you get $10. You pick five drivers, you get five drivers right, you get $20 if you put a dollar on it. And same with the six for 100. Now, if you do, you know, the four drivers and you put $5 on it, you win $50. Anyway, I would have one guy write tickets, one guy collect money, and a different guy pay out. I never held on to anything. And, you know, they knew I was running the gambling parlay, but I was always clean. They couldn't catch me with it. So they would transfer transfer me to a different prison. Eventually, the last prison I was at, um, my they my cellmate did tattoos and stuff like that. And um he had his ink that he had made up. He had his tattoo gun and all that, but it was called a common area. And he admitted, he says, all that's myself, you know? And, you know, I used to work out, hit the weights and stuff like that. So I had a couple cut off t-shirts. So they hit me when they did the shake. Cause the, the one day after count, they locked our cell down. They let everybody else out, but they were going after me. So they kept us locked down. They came down to what they'd call a shakedown and go through your stuff. I had a couple cut off shirts, you know, for working out and stuff. So they got me for destruction of personal property, tattoo paraphernalia, because, you know, my celly claimed it was his. But since it was in a common area, they can charge whoever they want. So I picked up two charges off of that and I had to go 
it to a segregated living unit. It wasn't necessarily the hole where you're locked down, but you go to a pod that, you know, they don't cut the TV on, the power to your cells until 8 a.m. You only get one, one hour out in the morning and then one out in the evening. They bring your food to you and everything, and they cut the power out at 8 o'clock. So it's pretty much locked down for uh, 22 hours. So I lost some good time after that during that deal. I was supposed to get out in um beginning of April of 2015. But yeah, they got me on pretty much his charges. They never caught me with that and you know, and they're it, it's all about respect. That's all it comes down to. Um you know, The the old thing, it's it's just it's crazy because if you don't have family members that send you money to order off a of commissary, it, it's hard in there because there's the meat on the packages. It says right on it, not for public consumption, and that's for mental institutes and prisons. And the food is garbage. So they kind of create that environment. And a lot of people say, oh, it's got to be easy. You get three hots and a cot, you know, and it's not that simple. You know, I've had guys literally come up to me and say, I'm not gay. It's just my hustle, meaning they'll suck dick for a cup of coffee. But that's. I could sit here for days on end just to talk about, you know, the mentality of not just prison life, but the environment that the system creates in itself. Um, Give us your thoughts on that a little bit. I mean, um, so you're, you're saying that the system creates this type of atmosphere and environment kind of breeds worse criminals. Yes, but I'm 50-50 on that because, like me, on the flip side, it's was the best thing to ever happen to me because if I didn't go to prison, I'd be six feet in the ground because of my addiction. It's all about the person's mindset and figuring out what they want to do with life. Did you but, ever use in prison? No, no. I I drank once or twice on homemade wine, which, you know, is not having anything in your body. A, a peanut butter jar full of homemade wine will get you trashed, and it's five bucks, you know, barter system. And um, I did drink twice in the seven years. Now, I help people get the stuff out of the kitchen for to make it and stuff like that to, you know, make money. But it's all about the person's outset. Like, I can see where people keep coming back to prison, like if they have no support system. You got to have a support system. Yes, you got to have a frame of mind, but you got to have a support system as well. Um, it's don't want to jump ahead, but it's like where I'm going through a divorce where I had relapsed after being clean for 15 years. And if it wasn't for my parents, I'd be homeless right now. And if it wasn't for family lending me money for lawyers, 
I would be a lose-lose situation. But that's later on down the road. Anyway, um, I, like I said, as sad as it is, prison was the best thing for me because I got my mind right on who I wanted to be as a person, who I wanted to be as a man. I had a strong support system. If you don't have that, what, I mean, there's very little things that the government will do to help you out to get on your feet because at every roadblock there's a pothole like they they almost set you up to fail you know and to get a it's so hard to get away from what all you know because all you know is how you have survived that's the only thing you know to keep living to keep getting food on the table whether it's sling dope or stealing or whatever the case is however you feed yourself or your family you know you're kind of forced into that in certain situations because the court systems and everything is so difficult So at what point in your life did you say you needed to get sober? I mean, so you said basically prison. At what 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 age did you go to prison? I was 22. 22. So obviously you said you only used liquor twice in there, or wine technically in there twice. So you were sober for those seven years. Yes. How long did your sobriety continue after that? Until last year, last, uh, last summer I used one time, but it was really last October when I got back into it bad. So 2022, 2021. So from 2000, November, I remember it was November November of 2007 was the last time I used cocaine and the I relapsed uh June of 2021 I did it one time and then you relapsed I, on coke yes I didn't go back to smoking but I I started doing blow and I did it once in June and then I just picked up in October and it was you know three or four times a week it was probably about three three grams a week so just under eight ball a week and it just you know me and my wife bought a business we went bought a bar and restaurant um because I moved back up to New York in October 17th of 2017 because I met her she drove down there every weekend to see me where I was staying at in Pennsylvania. Um, I couldn't, you know, with being on parole. So the day I, I got off of parole, I moved back up to New York. I did construction. I was, you know, got really good at what I did. And then, um, you know, just get my foot in the door doing construction. I said, hey, I'll start up. $14 an hour. I don't care what you pay or what else. So I was with the company for 2021. So from 
October 2017 until December 2020, I went from $14 an hour to working nothing but state and federal jobs making rate pay, which for a heavy equipment operator, it was $65 an hour. I only seen 31 of it because the 34 went into annuity and 401k and stuff because it was a non-union company. So we got our house paid off and everything. And she worked at the, you know, small town bar and restaurant off and on for 10, 15 years. She knew the previous owner. So with everything being paid off, we got ourselves in a good situation to buy the bar and restaurant. We pretty much started off with zero customers. There was, it was run down. It was a little bar, no place. It was run down. She's a, an amazing cook. And I never was the type to be a people person, but I figured out that I was really good at it. I was a bartender and I was a jokester. And, you know, you, you come into a restaurant bar, you want to leave the the real world outside whatever your stressors are you know your issues so i was able to make people joke and laugh so the combination of um her great cooking which we revamped the menu because it used to do pretty much what i call bar food finger food appetizers type deal and my humor and good nature and being down to earth we went from zero customers to our first year. We did $500,000 in sales. That's amazing. But I was there all the time, you know, renovating it, working on the bar and restaurant. You know, it was run down. It was, it was not for the faint of heart. And we made it respectable. But there's some nights where on a random Wednesday night, I want to get home until 3.30 in the morning. And... That's because, well, we got to stop liquor sales at 2 a.m. By the time I got them out the door and cleaned the whole building, get home at 3.30 in the morning. I get up sometimes before 7 a.m., go back down there and start working on the building. Um, And I fell into everybody like me, so they're like, buy you a shot. You know, I'll buy you a drink. Now, I never drank liquor before because alcoholism ran into my family. When I did construction, I would have a couple beers here and there. That's probably a six-pack a month. You know, a couple beers on the weekend or family cookout, I'd have a few beers. I never drank liquor. So once I, you know, we owned a bar, being on the run, because I could take care of a full bar and a couple tables out in the dining room. So I was always ripping and running, back and forth a million miles an hour. So it was easier just to do a shot or drink a liquor. And, you know, I got to a point where I was drinking every day, and that led to, you know, falling back into cocaine use. And the cocaine use was pretty much just to keep me going at first. And I thought I could control it and thought I could, you know, I'll only use just when I'm feeling tired or when I need a pick-me-up. And I lied to myself. Just like any addict, they would, you know, just flat-out lie to yourselves. You know, as being a recovering addict, you you just lie. Down, you know, plain and simple. You think you can control it, and you really can't. 
So that's what got me back into using cocaine and the liquor. I didn't, I didn't really see it until I took a step back. And that step back was, um, I tried to fight it. You know, my wife took me to my parents' house, but the bartenders couldn't get drinks and they couldn't ring up all the drinks. We were losing money. So three or four days, she would come and get me and bring me home and put me into the same situation. And being an addict, I just, I, I just couldn't be in that situation without drinking, you know, or being around the people. Um, August 15th of this year, I'll forever remember the day because I was talking to a couple of our workers and they wasn't really understanding because if you haven't dealt with addiction, no one understands. I was struggling. I told them you, it was a little bit slow that afternoon. And I said, I got to go home. I got to mow the grass. I cannot be here. Because this whole time doing blow, I hated it. I did not want to do it. But the physical reaction, I needed it where I had gotten into too deep. You mean you were physically dependent? Yes. And every time I did it, I hated myself for it because I would mentally tell myself, I don't want it. I don't, I don't need it. I don't want it. But my body wouldn't allow me to say no. But the day I called the August 15th of 2022, I talked to my coworkers. I said, I got to get out of here. I got to go home, mow the grass or something. I called my wife and she said she didn't care and I should go kill myself. So with having a $300,000 life insurance policy and being my frame of mind mentally, I was like, well, I'm not going to commit suicide because the girls, my beneficiary, my two daughters, seven and nine, want to get the money. They want to be looked at. Of. So I called the worst per- possible person that would have the biggest piece of garbage that I could OD on and be an accidental death. I called her up and I got some and my wife, somebody was watching the house, seeing someone pulling the driveway or whatever. And she came home and snapped on me and made me pack my stuff. And my dad came and got me. And that was the last time I used because I, even though my actions didn't say I did, I love my wife. I love my girls. I love the life I created, but the addiction didn't allow me to love it, to show my love. Um, because I was all about myself. Um, and I didn't go to no rehab center. Uh, I went, I went to a cousin's house, my cousin and aunt's house down in North Carolina for a week to detox. And I, I went crazy. You know, I, you know, went through the whole nine yards, you know, the physical pain, the body shakes, the cold sweats, um, I was out of my mind because, well, I found out my wife was talking to other men and, you know, sleeping around and stuff like that. And, you know, once I got past all that stuff, 
she eventually put a restraining order on me, which has been dropped and whatnot. But I've been since August 15th of 2022 and just penis because I was at the low of lows with prison and then got to the highs of the highs with having a successful business walking around every day $3,000 in my pocket buying whatever I wanted to doesn't matter but that ball of stress and every day you don't get to enjoy it and hit rock bottom again i'm just trying to build myself back up but this time my motivation is not being some successful business owner where i thought money would be the key to happiness and yada 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 and the I finally found the meaning of life and the true happiness and been to the mountaintop and I've been to rock bottom, not once, but twice. But the second time I figured out why I had to be there. And that's to find the inner peace from a traumatic experience in my childhood to finally put my demons to rest, alcoholic. And I just kind of shut the closet door and didn't let the demons out because I preoccupied them. I never faced those demons. And everything came out when I relapsed and I was finally able to kill off those demons for good and just get beyond that point. I got what you're saying. <clears throat> Completely feel you on that. So let me ask I you mean, this question. How, how do you keep yourself sober nowadays? I have completely isolated myself. I blocked all, because I had seven different dealers. I blocked their number, blocked them on Facebook, and completely isolated myself and started over. And pretty much looked at Say, for example, Facebook. Okay, who is out for me and wants to really be part of the support? Or who wants to, who don't want to use me? So I went through and blocked everybody that I felt like wasn't beneficiating me as far as my mental health, my physical health, my addiction. And then I kept everybody that had really the best interest for me instead of using me. And what keeps me sober is my two little girls. They're seven and nine. I can, you know, if they call me right now and want me to come pick them up, I can be there and pick them up. And I don't have to have an I'm busy or something because I'm too fucked up, too drunk or too high to go pick them up and I'd have to lie to them. But they could, you know, if they wanted daddy to come get them, 
I can jump in the car and go get them with no problem. And that is really sad, is it? Because I just adopted a clean mine, but they were, when I met them, they were still in diapers. They didn't know their biological father. And I had just adopted them in February. So they only know me as dad. And they're, I, they're mine. You know, I look at them no differently. And fight in that time of relapse and addiction without the self-love, I didn't realize how much they needed me. I didn't realize how much they loved me. Where I didn't understand my effects and, and really clearing my head and finally realizing that how important I am to them. There's not a chance in hell I could ever return to addiction because I just, I have to be there for them. That's a great motivator. Feel the same way. It's me and my daughter. She's the reason I got sober and she's the reason I stay sober. Absolutely. Just, I mean, it's the precious, precious time. It could be just something as simple as going to McDonald's for a half hour. And that time is precious. You can't get it back. Nope. Can't get back at all. So did you have anything else you want to add or talk about? <laughs> it's just been a crazy I, like sometimes when I sit back and look get back at my life I just I really can't believe some of the stuff that I've gone through like I, I could sit here and talk to you for a week on end and really go into details about a lot of stuff and if you were a regular Joe Schmo on the park bench kind of like uh Forrest Gump you think I'd be telling a lie. You would think I'd I'd have some amazing story that I had nothing but time to make up. And because if somebody told me my life story, my reaction, I would probably laugh at them. You know, it's it's really it's unbelievable at times, you know. I mean, everybody's got a story, and everybody's story is just as valuable as mine. Don't think I think I'm better than anybody else by no means. It's just, it, it seems like a fairy tale, but stuck in a nightmare. So let me ask you one last question. Do you have any advice for people watching and listening? Don't give up. There's always, as long as you got hope, you cannot have a negative mindset and expect to have positive outcomes. No matter what little goal it is, whether it is just getting up, with just having a goal of a positive mindset means the world. You cannot expect to fall back into addiction or relapse 
if you continue to walk down the same sidewalk, you got to get across that street and see the brighter side of things. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. You're welcome. So did you have anything else you want to talk about? <laughs> I'm, I think I'm pretty good for right now. I mean, I, right. you know, maybe once I get my more of a thought process, maybe put a pen to paper and have a little bit more organization. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to come chat again. All right, maybe we'll figure something out. I've done part twos before with people, so we can talk after the show. Sounds good, bud. Thank you. All right, man, sit tight for me. Don't go anywhere. And for everybody watching and listening, if you like what you saw and heard, go below and give us a like. Also, subscribe to see when we upload new videos. You can check us out on Twitter, Reddit, Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook. You can also uh, check out our website, which is www.addicts-anonymous.com. There you will find plenty of resources as well as free literature. So once again, I hope you enjoy today and until next time.